0: The miracle in David's life is that he ascribes his achievements to God when the temptation to do otherwise is enormous. David understands and channels his own genius, but God gets the credit, not him. And David's victory is always for David, another sign of Israel's remarkable endurance. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 86, Michelangelo's Mistake. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. The most beloved image of King David in all of Western art is Michelangelo's David, standing 17 feet tall in the center of Florence, in the Gallery de surrounded eternally by hordes of tourists who have come from all over the world to gaze enraptured on an Adonis-like David, poised perfectly in stone, in position right before he launches his deadly rock at Goliath. It is a masterpiece. Yet, this widely known depiction of one of history's most famous Jews is actually not at all Jewish. As Simon Shama has pointed out, Michelangelo's creation reflects his inspiration from classical Greek and Roman art. Michelangelo, Shama notes, quote, was not much interested in the rendering of common bodies, still less in the imitation of workaday faces. His passion was to approximate men to gods, end quote. Thus we have a David that is nude and muscled, an embodiment of classical manhood. And it is entirely wrong. When we look to the biblical context describing the very greatness of David, we see that Scripture emphasizes all that Michelangelo ignores, and that the text illustrates how the artist entirely missed all that made David great. In chapter 15, Saul was ordered by Samuel to wage war against the Amalekites, Israel's greatest enemy. The battle is won, but in contrast to the divine decree, Saul brings the animals of the Amalekites as offerings as part of a sacrificial celebration when they were actually supposed to be destroyed. And Saul also spares the life of the wicked king of Amalek, Agag. Samuel confronts Saul, and the king of Israel blames his failings on the people, and only later admits his sin. As Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs the prophet by the cloak, and the cloak tears. Samuel responds by punning prophetically of what has occurred. Chapter 15, verse 28. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of God from thee this day and has given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. What Saul says next is astonishing, verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet do me honor now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. In other words, Saul asked to be honored by the prophet. He still confuses the essence of kingship and makes it first and foremost about the superficial act of honor. He seems to think, as we have cited from Shakespeare, what have kings that privates have not too, save ceremony? save general ceremony. In chapter 16, God then sends Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint his successor to Saul. When Samuel arrives at the house of Jesse, he seeks out someone who looks like Michelangelo's David, tall, strapping, with the makings of a mighty warrior, and he therefore assumes that David's older brother is the intended king. Verse 6, and it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. God, however, sternly responds to Samuel that his entire aesthetic approach is fundamentally flawed. Unlike with Saul, one should not embrace a monarch based on externalities. And here, ladies and gentlemen, we come upon one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For it is not as a man sees. For a man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. In leadership, what matters is not height, but heart. And in David, we will discover a heart utterly unlike any other. And it is with this in mind that God's election of David is to be understood. It is not that David is perfect. As we will see, the struggles he undergoes, the failings he overcomes, will be central to his story. But the presence of God is felt so closely to his heart. And if the embrace of the previous statuesque king, the tall Saul, reveals the dangers of monarchy when it borders on the worship of the human being surrounded by ceremony. David is presented as the cure to this religious disease. If David is chosen, it is not because of his gifts as a warrior, but rather the fact that throughout his career it will be God that he will see and cite as the source of his success. He embodies simultaneously the importance of wielding military might against enemies of Israel, while at the same time ascribing all his triumph all is success, and all glory to God. This we see at his very first great victory, when in chapter 17 the Philistine warrior, the gargantuan Goliath, challenges any Israelite to a fight. Only David, who had arrived to bring food to his brothers, steps forward. When Saul voices skepticism of the shepherd boy's military prowess, David replies in defiance that he has bested many a mighty adversary on the field of battle. Verse 34. Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And then David adds, thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them. David, based on this sentence alone, seems to embody arrogance, confidence, braggadocio. But then David adds a second sentence that allows another point to emerge. The God who saved me from the lion and the bear, he will save me from the Philistine. And in facing Goliath, David draws confidence not only from his own abilities, but from his faith. Verse 45, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. It is precisely for this reason that David and only David is chosen as the eternal ancestor of the Israelite monarchy. If the flaw of monarchy is potential idolatry, and if the central social concern of the Torah when it comes to monarchy is the idolization of the king, then David as king, statesman, and political leader is the antidote. The moment is a microcosm of David's greatness. The stand against Goliath provides a prism through which to study David's entire career, and the essence of David's achievement in the Goliath episode is not often understood. David uses strategy in approaching Goliath. He has eschews the armor offered him, and he chooses his own weapon in verse 40. And he took a staff in his hand, and he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag which he had, and in his knapsack, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Malcolm Gladwell, in his celebrated essay and book on David and Goliath, insists that the central lesson of the story is that any gifted strategist can turn disadvantage into advantage, and that David is a very gifted strategist indeed. Gladwell writes, quote, David's victory over Goliath in the biblical account is held to be an anomaly. It was not. David's win all the time. The political scientist Ivan Aragon Toft recently looked at every war fought in the past 200 years between strong and weak combatants. The Goliaths he found won in 71.5% of the cases. That is a remarkable fact. Argentuft was analyzing conflicts in which one side was at least ten times as powerful in terms of arm, might, and population as its opponent. And even in those lopsided contests, the underdog won almost a third of the time. And Gladwell thus studies the biblical story and shows, in every step, the strategy that David employs. David eschews any armor. This allowed him to act with a speed and quickness with which Goliath, girded in unwieldy armor, could not compete. Utilizing a sling, David targeted his opponent's forehead, the one part of the body that was unprotected. David acted in unexpected ways, used speed and targeting, and turned the weaknesses of his powerful opponent against him. In David's stand against Goliath for Gladwell, we see the makings of a military genius, one who is crafty and unconventional, and therefore can win not only once, but throughout his life. Gladwell is right in some respect, but to stress this, and this alone, is to miss the meaning of the episode. Of course David here employs his remarkable mind in order to achieve victory. And of course we encounter in this young man the makings of a military genius and ultimately a monarch. Nowhere does the Bible say that David's victory of Goliath is an anomaly. And of course the episode indicates the talents that David will make manifest as king. But the miracle in David's life is that he ascribes his achievements to God when the temptation to do otherwise is enormous. David understands and channels his own genius but God gets the credit not him and David's victory is always for David another sign of Israel's remarkable endurance as he said the god who saved me from the lion and the bear will save me from the Philistines that humility for the bible that is the anomaly because for most truly impactful statesmen it is their celebration of themselves their delight in being in charge that is at least in part the source of their strength this is true even of some of the greatest of statesmen. In his own memoirs, Churchill described his state of mind when he was finally appointed as prime minister by the king. This was at the most daunting moment in British history. France was falling. The Nazis had swept the continent. America and the Soviet Union were not yet in the war. And yet, Churchill wrote, quote, I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account a profound sense of relief. At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. I thought I knew a good deal about it all, Churchill adds, and I was sure I should not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams, End quote. The reader of Churchill's memoir is immediately overwhelmed by his sense of confidence. and Confidence is a character trait that David had as well, but the overwhelming sense of humility in the face of God's providence that David will make manifest is lacking in Churchill's account. Churchill did indeed believe in destiny and in God, but as the great biographer and historian Andrew Roberts once put it, in Churchill's theology, God's job seemed mainly to be safeguarding the well-being of Winston Churchill. Now, do we begrudge Churchill's self-confidence, his delight in being in control, his seeming belief that his very will could win the war? No. I say this not as criticism of Churchill, whose example never ceases to inspire but I bring it as a form of contrast. And it's quite clear that in Churchill's case, his own confidence in himself allowed him to be a bulwark in the face of the impotence of Chamberlain and much of the free world facing Hitler at the time. William Manchester's biography of Churchill, The Last Lion, reports that once, in an argument with his butler, Churchill commented, you were very rude to me. So the butler responded, you were very rude to me as well. And Churchill said, yes, but I am a great man. We hear such stories and we laugh, but Manchester notes that the story comes from the butler, who also reflected, quote, there was no answer to that. He knew, as I and the rest of the world knew, that he was right, end quote. He was right. Churchill was a great man, and he himself knew it. David, however, is different. David knows that he is a great man, but God gets all the credit, not him. This is an aspect of David's life that we see in few others. One possible parallel of humility and leadership may be Lincoln who, in writing about one of his most extraordinary acts the Emancipation Proclamation, reflected as follows, quote, In telling this tale, I attempt no compliment to my own sagacity. I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. Now, at the end of 3 years' struggle, the nation's condition is not what either party or any man devised or expected. God alone can claim it, end quote. This humility is striking, rare, and Davidic. The Bible asked leaders to make manifest leadership, but also awe and humility. To look upon themselves as both chess masters in history, but also as the pawns of providence. It requires extraordinary steps, brilliant military maneuvers, astonishing bravery, and heroic feats. While all at the same time, in the midst of these very actions, the Bible asked leaders to remember that they are not only acting, but being acted upon. Saul was selected, and all Israel gazed upon his height and celebrated him reflecting the fact that they sought a king to worship. But David is the man who refuses to allow society to idolize him and therefore will not let his monarchy become an idolatry. The encounter with Goliath from the very beginning reveals why he has been chosen. And so we return to the most famous artistic image of David, the statue of Michelangelo towering over all in Florence. And as we ponder that enormous image, we remember God's words to Samuel. Look not to his appearance or his height. God looks to the heart. So consider the irony. The man who was chosen by God, based not on how he looks but on his character, not on his height but rather what is in his heart, David, is remembered in the history of art, first and foremost, in this very tall creation of Michelangelo. Man looks to the eyes, but God in choosing David looks to the heart. Fallible human beings, even at times the most ingenious of artists, See the superficial, the exterior, whereas God truly looks to what lies within. As such, Michelangelo's mistake is a useful one with which to consider David's legacy. For as we shall see, David's story is about the essence of leadership, the difference between eye and heart, what is without and what lies within, the misleading exterior, and the interior heroism that matters most. Over the next chapters throughout this biblical book, David's character, his challenges, his failings— his penitence, and his travails will teach us what makes his leadership singular and why to this day Jews proclaim in Hebrew that King David still lives. David Melech Yisrael, Kayam. This is Meir Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.